a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Once again, I am very happy to connect with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, I trust you had a safe and happy Independence Day celebration. Well, I had a free one. I actually went for a freedom ride on one of my motorcycles uh, without a helmet and without a diaper. Wow. That is, and, and in this day and age, that is quite a statement. But, uh, but I would have expected nothing less of you. Well, it's my way of expressing my frustration with what I'll style the passive poltroonery of all too many Americans who will sit cringing in their home doing exactly what the government tells them, no matter how bizarre or tyrannical, Meanwhile, the, and I put them in fingered air quotes, protesters can go out and devastate cities and extort people and terrify people. Nothing's done appreciably about that. Uh, And I think the reason has to do with the fact that they've actually got the guts, and I'm not praising them. I'm just simply pointing out they've got the guts to say no. And I think Americans need to to learn to get the guts to say no, too. Oh, I'm with you there. Now, I did see one thing over the July 4th weekend that I actually found very encouraging, and that was uh, in, in numerous states where, of course, fire danger is high and official pronouncements have been made. There will be no, mm-hmm. you know, backyard fireworks displays because, you know, yeah. it's, it's illegal. I have never in my life seen more fireworks for a longer period of time than I saw mm-hmm. on Saturday night. I, I mean, nothing comes close. Yes, we had the same here in Virginia, where, of course, uh, it's been illegal for decades to have any uh, fireworks yourself that fly or explode. But we had plenty of those, I'm happy to report, Uh, as well as plenty of people gathering without the diaper and cooking and having, having drinks and just enjoying one another's company without standing six feet apart. And, you know, that was the interesting thing. All of those fireworks I saw represented some very open defiance to official pronouncements. I mean, it's it's clear to me that we're reaching a point in some ways where post-pandemic Americans are tired of taking orders from, you know, people in authority, except... Well, it's about time. Ex- the, it's the, about time, isn't it? Yeah, the one exception, though, is, as you've mentioned, and that is the, the face diaper. I've never seen masks right. become more divisive than they have in just the last couple of weeks. Well, because the narrative right now has convinced people that uh, we're in the midst of what's styled the second wave. Uh, These people are listening to Anderson Cooper and Brian Stelter and CNN and all the rest of these people who are inflating the fear balloon with the cases. The cases are increasing, never qualified, never explained, never put into context. So people are once again being hystericized that if they don't wear the diaper, that they're contributing to an increase in this deadly pandemic, which actually isn't killing almost anybody anymore. Uh, Right now, people listening to this may not be aware of it, but the fatality rate is down by something like 90% from April. And nobody in the general press is talking about this. It's really good news, and it gives the lie to all the official pronunciamentos that we've been hearing now for months and months and months. This thing is not what it was portrayed as, and yet... Despite all this good news, you'd think the news was terrible because you walk outside and it looks like we're living in a national leper colony. 
Yeah, I've been encouraged at various times as I've gone to the store over the last few months to see, you know, that oftentimes, you know, 50% or more of the people aren't wearing the masks. But some, yeah. something clicked in this last week or so. I got my first yeah. verified case of stink eye from a lady at the grocery yep. store because I wasn't wearing the mask. Sure. Yeah, tremendous social pressure is being brought to bear on the people who aren't diapered up. And that's why I think it is so critically important that we not give in to that pressure, which is irrational pressure. And it's dangerous pressure. It's not merely walking around seeing all these people wearing the diapers. Uh, It's that by having everybody diapered up, you create the impression of a crisis, an ongoing crisis, which gives these politicians who've been destroying the country now for the past four or five months all the excuse they need to destroy it even more. Well, I, you and I were talking before we went on the air, and, and I think you rightly point out, with all the distractions going on, the Black Lives Matters protests, the riots, the, the mm-hmm. rising crime, and so forth, those are very handy distractions, but I know you feel that this is one of the crucial pivot points, this may be one of the crucial battles, and that is resisting that urge to, uh, to fall in line with the narrative that all must wear the mask. Absolutely, because if you accept that, you accept everything that's to come. It's not just about the diapers. If they can convince people that diapering is legitimate, necessary, it has to be done, otherwise we're all going to die, then how are you going to make an argument against having the troops running around to everybody's house and ordering people to stick out their arm for the official Wu-Flu vaccination and the official Wu-Flu tracking app on their phone? No, and, and I'm with you. I... I see it as this as well, and it, it, this puts me at odds at times with my wife and sometimes with, with other friends mm-hmm. who, who are very adamant about, but if we just put on the mask, it's not asking that much, and it, it may actually help. But I'm, I'm more of the mind of what you're talking mm-hmm. about. If I give yeah. my compliance, I'm furthering the aims of those who are trying to consolidate control. Sure, it's asking a lot, actually, to uh, accede to this, to pretend, to believe to, to pretend that you believe that all of this is legitimate when it's not. Well, and you, you reference you know, this in one of your, your essays, Enumerate, Indifferent, or Complicit. And, and you, yeah. I think you make a wonderful parallel with the emperor's new clothes. Sure. Yeah, that's a great story, I think, by Hans Christian Andersen, if I'm remembering correctly. And the story was that the emperor of a fabled town uh, was, was duped by a con man into paying an exorbitant amount of money for what were styled his fabulous new clothes, which didn't exist, but he didn't want to be embarrassed. So he marched around naked. And, of course, the social pressure of all the people in his kingdom uh, coerced the people into pretending along with him. And they would marvel as the naked emperor walked down the street about his fantastic robe and the beauty of his, of his velvet breeches and all of this other stuff. Until finally, one little kid, the only sane kid in the whole community, raised his hand and said, wait a minute, the emperor is naked. <laughs> and and that, that is what the, that's the position that we find ourselves in now. By not putting on the diaper, we are pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. And it's very important, not only for ourselves, uh, but also to provide that example to other people who may be uh, bending knee to this just because they don't want to raise a ruckus. And they've been, they've been pressured into believing that, well, it's a compassionate thing to do. I'm making other people feel safe, which is luminously dangerous. So I, I like to ask the question when I see the news being reported a certain way, for instance, the, yeah. you know, the focus on, oh, look at the number of cases, why it's spiking and everything yeah. is, you know, spiraling out of control. I like yeah, to yeah. ask, Cui Bono, who benefits from this being reported this way? In your estimation, who benefits from the, the hysteria that ignores the fact that deaths are dropping precipitously, even as the cases are rising? 
Well, it's multi-tiered. Uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a sort of vicious, common, vulgar level, the media benefits because they think that by touting all of this catastrophe, that they will get more clicks and more people watching them, that they'll make more money. There used to be a saying in the news media about if it bleeds, it leads. So they, that's part of their motivation. But the other aspect of it is that most of the media is controlled by a handful of corporations in this country. And they're all singing the same song, and they're singing the same song at the direction of this government-corporate nexus that is using this whole thing as the pretext to establish what they want, which is, in my opinion, a national company town. People out there who are listening to this may want to look into what a company town was. It was a place where you not only worked for the company, you lived in the company house, you had company script, and the company controlled every little last aspect of your life. And if you stepped out of line, you didn't have a job, you didn't have food, and you were anathematized out of the community. I know you referenced one of the, the really cringy cases of compliance that took place in Oregon where some state troopers were actually caught on camera, you yep. know, not wearing their masks and basically saying, well, screw the governor and her stupid order. Right. But that didn't last, right. did it? It didn't because these heroic tough guys were constantly enjoined to regard them as heroes who are just out there uh, standing on the thin blue line protecting us while they bent knee. Uh, because they were going to lose their jobs if they didn't uh, do what Governor Kate Brown told them to do, which was to diaper up. Uh, not one of them had the guts to say, you know what, this job isn't worth it. I will, I will take a job that does not require me uh, to degrade myself and perform sickness kabuki and obeisance rituals for the sake of somebody like Kate Brown. Wow. Well, I think you make a very powerful case. It's sanity. It's it's the ability to actually acknowledge reality that's at stake here. It's not just a political goal. Sure. Sure. You know, again, I, I use the term innumerate, meaning somebody who is uh, unable to do supermarket math in that article. Uh, you can look at it in any way you like. In my own state, we have roughly 9 million residents. 9 million residents. And the number of people that the governor claims have been felled by Wu flu, even if we don't want to get into contesting these numbers, it's 1,500 people. Amazing. Out of almost 9 million people. So and in my particular area, I think the total number of people who've died is something like uh, 25. And almost all of those people were well into their 80s and in nursing homes. And yet, everybody out there is walking around with a diaper on. Okay, hold it's that thought. the thing I've ever seen in my life. Hold that thought. We've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back. My guest is Eric Peters from epautos.com. We are, uh, I guess, Eric, I, I look at your, uh, my conversation with you each week as a sort of reality supplement. Because you regularly are, are uh, writing on your website, uh, ericpetersautos.com, and, and you have a very, good, uh, a very good knack of putting your finger on the pulse of what is happening, particularly as it pertains to, to liberty, as well as you write a lot of really cool stuff about cars and motorcycles and the like. Well, thank you about that. I appreciate that. 
Well, I, I want my listeners to make sure that they're availing themselves of, of the information that you have available. Um, and, and you had a story here recently. I just I want to bring this up again. I hope it doesn't feel like we're beating a dead horse. But the, the narrative that Black Lives Matters is putting out there mm-hmm. is that it is primarily black lives that are at threat of danger from the armed government worker out there. Time and yeah. time again, though, I see on your website examples of where it's not just the black lives that are in danger. Well, the thing of it is, this Black Lives Matter movement is, and this isn't, this isn't simply me asserting this, this is not my opinion, this is a fact, it is a front for a Marxist movement that is using race as a divisive wedge to set us at one another's throats for the purpose of sowing disarray and disorder so that they can then step in and provide their new order. Uh, this has never been about racism. Not that there aren't racist cops. Of course there are racist cops. But this idea that cops are, are, are out there targeting black people and meanwhile uh, guys like you and me, middle-aged white guys, uh, get a free pass is nonsense. Uh, that is why I routinely post videos of people who aren't black also being hut, hut, hutted sometimes to death by armed government workers. I have two up there this week. One is some poor kid. He's, I think, 21 years old. Uh, who got pulled over for a speeding infraction and within a few minutes is ventilated dead on the floor. And wow. apparently for, for nothing. You know, the, the, the armed government worker conveniently shuts off his, uh, his body cam at the moment of truth, and the next thing we see is this kid bleeding out on the ground and uh, the armed government worker taking his jolly sweet time, apparently eight to nine minutes, before even attempting to give the kid any type of medical aid whatsoever. No rioting or protesting over that. Well, and, and what you're describing is the symptom of, of making everything a police matter, over-legislating, creating more laws than are necessary. It's something that yeah. would, would actually, uh, I, I know you're very consistent in your principles here. If we were to observe individual rights and protect individual rights by keeping the state out of our business, except in those cases where there's an actual victim, much of this problem would go away. Of course, there are, there are far too many laws. There has been uh, there have been a number of books written about this. How people like you and I, anybody, the moment you step out of your house, practically, you've technically broken some law or other. There's always a law that you're uh, that you're guilty of that gives these people a pretext to harass you. The laws are out of control. That's one thing that's out of control. Um, the resort to immediate over-the-top escalation to uh, to make people submit is also out of control. In the case, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, that happened in Atlanta about a week or two ago, there was a guy who apparently was passed out drunk at a Wendy's, and uh, the cops came. Now, he's drunk. Okay, fine. Uh, at, and eventually uh, he tries to run away, and they shoot him in the back for that. Why not just let the guy run away? He's on foot. They've got his car. They've got his keys. Who cares? It's a drunk driving charge. It's not felony murder or even robbery. Right. Well, it's as you point out in, in one of your, your more recent articles about a kid getting hut, hut, hutted, it's, it's a matter of the officer saying, well, but I feared for my safety. And, and that safety trumps everyone in their vicinity. Yeah. Sure it does. Uh, and it's a double standard as well. I think you and I have touched on this before. You and I both have concealed carry permits, and you and I both know that we can't ululate that we felt afraid and kill somebody. No. We have to have uh, demonstrable, very sound evidence that our life was in imminent danger. And in my state, you actually have an obligation to attempt to retreat before you may resort to lethal force. I can't say, oh, I felt scared, and I shot the guy to death. 
and get the you know get the pat on the back and the seventy k pension and waltz off into the sunset. So I want to ask you, because you are an automotive writer, and this may be a bit of a stretch, but one of the things mm-hmm. that we are seeing starting to crop up, especially in some of the major population centers, are protesters blocking the roads, surrounding cars, and then yeah. threatening motorists, breaking out windows, breaking off mirrors, yeah. and so forth, until people yeah. panic and try to drive away, at which point, I mean, right. here, here in my home state of Utah, I got shot last week trying to get away from yes. protesters. Give me your thoughts on what options are available to a motorist, you know, when, when it comes to something like this, it seems like an absolute no-win situation. Well, it's their, first of all, they're not pro- protesters, they're rioters. These aren't people who are expressing their grievance uh, with the government or with some other thing as prescribed by the First Amendment, which everybody has a right to do. They're not standing off the road on, on the sidewalk holding signs. These are violent thugs. And this is exactly the sort of thing that we're supposed to have armed government workers, or rather, when we used to have cops rather than armed government workers, to deal with. It should not be permitted. The, the dereliction of duty here is astounding. If there is any legitimate basis for government at all, it is to keep things like that from happening. It is to maintain the peace. It is to assure that peace-loving people, people like you and I and every other decent person out there, can drive down the street or walk down the street without being attacked by a mob of thugs. That's the problem. Yeah, it's... And, and when a person calls for the police, they're more likely to get, well, sorry, we have more pressing matters. The police aren't there in their mm-hmm. moment of need. But if they try to drive off, if they feel threatened because their windows are breaking and people are trying to reach into their car or drag them out, more often than not, it looks like the motorist is the one who gets charged with the crime for driving through this crowd of, you know, well, what the press outrageous. calls protesters. That, in my opinion, that, that is outrageous. That, to me... Uh, constitutes an imminent danger. If you're in your vehicle and your vehicle is surrounded by a mob of thugs who are attacking you, who are smashing your window and attempting to get at you, I don't. I, to me, that rises to the level of an imminent threat to your life and safety. And in my mind, uh, you have absolutely every right to use whatever means at your disposal to get out of there and to preserve your life and the life of your family if they happen to be with you. No, I, I agree. And yet I, I, I wonder... What what tools may be available? For instance, could the Waze app help uh, uh, you know appraise uh, apprise uh, motorists of of where this kind of activity is taking place? Avoidance, I would think, would be the best tactic. Well, yeah, of course, avoidance is the best tactic. But the problem is, if you knew, you wouldn't go, right? Sure. You know, people get people get caught in these things precisely because they had no idea. Nobody walks down a dangerous back alley, uh, you know, knowing that there's a, a violent thug there who's who's going to who's going to attack them and steal their wallet. That's the problem. You know, you're you're just trying to go about your business. It's reasonable to think, well, I mean, I'm driving down the road. The road is there for cars. It's not for for throngs of thugs with 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 tire irons, baseball bats, knives, and God knows what else. Skateboards. This is the obligation of the government to take care of this thing. And if the government won't do it, then we as individuals have the absolute right to do it for ourselves. Yeah, I, I wish I wish there were some kind of an easy answer. Well, my only, I guess, the only thing I can say is, if someone finds themselves charged for trying to get away in such a, such a situation, I pray that I'm one who's called to be on their jury. Absolutely, and you know, we still as Americans do have that power, even though it's uh, knowledge that they're trying to suppress. And what I'm speaking of here is jury nullification. Uh, under our system of government, it is the right of a juror to weigh the correctness of the charge, whether they believe that the person uh, deserves to be convicted of the thing, irrespective of the judge's instructions and what the prosecuting attorney says, if you believe that this is a, 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 
a malicious, wrongful prosecution, you have the right to say, no, I will not vote to convict this person. Well, Eric, uh, let's let's take a moment here to, again, steer our listeners to your website. Tell them where they can find it. Sure. It's epautos.com, or they can just uh, DuckDuckGo, my name. By the way, you always use DuckDuckGo. Don't Google. Support DuckDuckGo. They don't track you. Okay. And, and let's, uh, we've got about 30 seconds here. Let's give a quick shout-out to some of your sponsors. Oh, sure. Uh, Valentine One, uh, which most people who like to drive will already know about, makes what I believe to be the best radar detector on the market. Also, Amsoil lubrication products, uh, not just oil, also things like transmission fluid. They make the best stuff in the business. And again, that's uh, not opinion. You can look into the actual evidence of how that stuff performs relative to the competition. Okay, I highly recommend epautos.com. If you need a daily reality supplement, and I think we all do, this is the guy who can give it to you. Eric, thanks. It's been great to visit with you once again. Always. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being a part of our growing audience. And if you haven't already visited anchor.fm and uh, subscribe to The Brian Hyde Show, please do so. Maybe tell a friend. It's always good to see our audience growing and seeing the message get out there. So uh, here's a question for you. How hard is it for you to change your beliefs. Now, I know we all like to think of ourselves as open-minded, reasonable people who, when confronted with new truth, would change our thinking. But sometimes it's not that easy. And this is a trap that all of us can fall into. Um, I'm seeing this a lot these days, you know, with with, uh, the the Black Lives Matters protesters. uh, You know, when I see them, uh, for instance, storming into a church and shouting profanities and and using, uh, you know, bullhorns to interrupt a service, I don't think there's any amount of rational, persuasive facts that could change their minds that they have been oppressed or they have been offended. And by gosh, you know, somebody needs to do something about it. At least that's that's the impression that I'm getting. Now, this is only one example. It, it falls on all sides of the political spectrum. But the question is, is that the kind of thing that uh, that should cause the rest of us to well, basically, stop shining the light of truth. In other words, if, you, if you're a person who normally likes to, you know, speak the truth, but now you're worried. Maybe the cancel culture is gunning for you, and you, you think there's nothing I can do or say that's going to persuade them or change their minds. You might be right in the sense that uh, some people have slipped beyond the event horizon of rationality, and they're just not interested in further light and knowledge. Okay, that's their prerogative. That's part of that, uh, you know, autonomy that each one of us has. But it's still worth putting your voice out there. It's still worth speaking the truth, even if there is risk involved. Ken McManigal has an excellent piece on everythingvoluntary.com, and it's called Changing Your Beliefs. Now, he says, I used to think people could change their beliefs. I thought if people were presented with better information, which showed the flaw in their belief, they would change their belief to fit the new information. And he says, I thought the process would be almost automatic. After all, he says, I've done it many times over the course of my life. I've also seen it happen in people that I know. I know from personal experience that it can be done. Sadly, he says, this isn't as common as I had assumed. 
In spite of overwhelming evidence, people still believe cops and political government are a good and necessary, or at least a necessary evil. They fear or hate what they call anarchy without even understanding what it is. They imagine there's such a thing as too much liberty, and they see that as a threat. And he says no amount of logic, information, or evidence to the contrary will budge them from their belief. They believe it. That's the end of it. And he says, I realize the problem. Even flawed beliefs based on bad information can still work. It's not as dangerous to hold an erroneous belief as it seems it should be. So as long as the belief isn't causing them immediate agony or death, it's less painful to hold on to it than it is to change it. Therefore, he says, I no longer expect better information to influence anyone, but I still put it out there so they'll have no excuse. (laughs) And he says, I'll still make fun of them for believing such ridiculous things. Okay, so let's let's revisit that for just a moment. I am a believer in speaking the truth. And yeah, if this sounds oh so high and mighty or if it sounds like it's being pushy, it's really not what's intended. But I want people to understand as far as I am, am concerned, I want the people within my sphere of influence to be able to, to, to not be able to say, no one ever told us. There was never anybody who sounded a warning or no one ever said anything that could have pointed out <clears throat> where we might have been making some, some very flawed mistakes or some very uh, bad, uh, bad decisions. I think it was Ron Paul who pointed this out many years ago. Never let it be said that no one said, beware that no one warned us. And it's not so much so I have the satisfaction of saying that I told you so, but just because I believe that the truth needs to be spoken, even if it's something that people really don't want to hear. Now, having said that, I'm not going to sit there and make fun of people for believing such ridiculous things, or at least I'm going to try hard not to make fun of them. But I am going to put it out there in the hopes that, that someone, even if it's just a tiny remnant of people, is looking for some kind of further light, some kind of encouragement. In other words, people who value the truth more than they value their attachment to their beliefs. It's easy to believe, well, there aren't very many people like that out there these days, but believe it or not, there there are those souls out there who who, that's the way they they think. That's, That's what motivates the way they approach life. And yeah, I'll concede their numbers are probably quite small in comparison to the rest of the crowd but they need your encouragement. If you want to read a great essay sometime, Albert J. Knox's uh, essay, Isaiah's Job, is one of the most remarkable discussions of what's called the remnant. And it's those people out there who are just doing their best. They're often unseen, often out of the spotlight. They're not the big movers and shakers, but they're the people for whom truth matters. And they love and they appreciate truth when they find it. But it can be hard to find. Can we agree on that? It's, it's not an easy thing to encounter this in these days. And the reason Isaiah was commanded to speak the truth was because there was this remnant out there who would be tasked with rebuilding what everybody else had managed to run into the ground. I have a strong hunch that if you're listening to this message right now, you're probably a part of that remnant. And you have a duty to help feed the rest of the remnant in terms of truth. So speak the truth with love, but speak it. No matter what the cancel culture is saying, no matter what kind of breathing and threatening they're doing about how we're going to cancel you, just speak it. 
All right, I want to shift gears here. Here's another one that uh, I thought was just a fascinating commentary from James Walpole. There's a lot of discussion going on right now about uh, heritage, you know, particularly statues, monuments, uh, everything that came before us. You know, what is our heritage? I think that was one of the big questions over the uh, 4th of July weekend. So here's, a, here's what, what James Walpole asks is whether you should feel pride in your heritage or whether you should feel challenge. He says, if you were born in America, you are gifted with quite a heritage. Explorers, craftsmen, warriors, statesmen, sailors, writers, and artists from Henry David Thoreau and Thomas Jefferson to Meriwether Lewis and Thomas Edison. Should you take pride in that heritage? And by the way, he says, set aside bad heritage. There's plenty of it, but let's talk about the good. Well, a common rejoinder is that even the best of our heritage is not a reason to feel any pride. After all, we're not those men. We didn't do those great deeds. And this is true. He says it's a good criticism, but in its off-intended effect to make us lose interest in our heritage or to be more critical of it, it misses the mark. He says we should not feel any personal pride for the inventions of Edison, for the writing of Thoreau, for the explorations of Lewis, or the philosophy of Jefferson. Instead, he says we should feel our pride challenged. Do you understand what he's saying? These guys should make us ashamed of ourselves, or at least insofar as we're not living up to their standards of character and achievement. James Walpole says, see, this is what our remembrance of history and heritage should do for us. It should not be self-congratulatory, but more self-examining and self-motivating. In other words, it's up to us to rise up to the best of the legacy given to us and to exceed that legacy. Now, if this seems like a tall order, he says it is. But there's another gift of heritage. With its challenge comes also the strength to meet it. The blood of great women and men flows in our veins, either literally in genetics or metaphorically through ideals and tradition. And the heritage they left includes the strength to be better men and women ourselves. And that, he says, insofar as we use it, may be something to be proud of. Look, I have to confess, for the longest time, I put the founding generation on this pedestal and, well, you know, but they were the founders and they they were so different from us. They were they were made from a different clay, as as Bastiat might have said, a finer clay. But that's not the case. And as you study their lives and as you especially read their writings and learn about the, the process by which they became who they were. They started out pretty average, just like us. One of my favorite exercises was to, to go back, uh, you know, 10, 15 years before 1776 and say, what was uh, what was George Washington doing then? Well, he was a farmer. He was a surveyor. He was he was a former military officer. In the British Army. What was James Madison doing? Well, 10 years before uh, the, the Declaration of Independence, he was a sickly young kid. They were normal people. They were just like you and me. But there was something within them that pushed them to pursue a path of greatness, personal greatness. And that required effort. And it's the same with us. So I love the idea of, yeah, be be proud of your heritage, but be proud of it in a way that I want to be the kind of people that they were, and I'm willing to pay the price to do so. Yeah, not everybody's going to do it. 
but we're always grateful for the ones who do pay that price. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back. Glad you could join us today. Let's talk a little bit about safety. I know, this is a pretty popular topic. In fact, uh, you look around you today, you will see very visible reminders, as we discussed with Eric Peters in the first half of the show, about, uh, you know, how safety is kind of the all-consuming goal of so many people today. And it seems like it's a good idea, right? I mean, after all, we well, what good is life if you're not being safe? But have you ever considered that uh, there is no real growth and there is no actual progress or authentic progress that can take place if you are unwilling to embrace a degree of risk. I'll liken it to a small business owner. Well, we're going to play it safe, and you know we're only going to do what what uh, we have to do to stay completely safe. Well, you'll never you'll never build a business, you'll never become independently wealthy, you'll never really grow something if that's the approach you take. And there's a terrific article on the American Institute for Economic Research from Diana W. Thomas and Michael Thomas. Safety first is a bad ideology. If there is a message that we need to hear, this is the message. They say when you walk out of your house or enter the public street, you are on shared ground, a community space. During the pandemic of 2020, community spaces that are private venues like Disney have closed down just as often as community spaces that are public venues like schools and playgrounds. Public and private distinctions do not make a difference. Risk is the key factor to understanding why common spaces are closed and likely to remain so, at least in the way we were used to. In what is called asymmetric loss function, a decision maker's cost of a mistake in one direction is many times greater than the cost of error in the other direction. Now, they explain here individuals with asymmetric asymmetric loss functions are extremely risk averse when it comes to potential losses. Individuals often employ asymmetric loss functions in everyday life. For instance, for most people, being 30 minutes early for a flight is much less costly than being 30 minutes late. That makes sense, right? But because people are different, individuals decide for themselves how late they can arrive and risk missing a flight. But the authors point out things get trickier when decisions regarding risk tolerance are made for common spaces and groups because one size fits all doesn't always fit all. Weighing downside risks too heavily could be socially costly because some valuable private activities are prohibited. Now, they point out that historically and across cultures, individual risk taking is associated with growth and prosperity, while minimizing risk and emphasizing potential social losses is not. In the last several decades, public tolerance of risk has shifted towards lower socially acceptable levels of risk-taking, and in the long run, they say these changes may leave us all worse off. In her Bourgeois Ethics, or Bourgeois Virtues, rather, Ethics for for an Age of Commerce, Deirdre McCloskey details how attitudes toward risk-taking transformed at about the same time as the birth of capitalism. In fact, it was the ability of individuals to take risks and still recover from failure that paved the way for radical experiments. Prior to this, to take a risk and fail was to be labeled a prodigal if one was thought to have wasted the money or a projector 
if one idea has failed. Now, some of this dishonor would extend to the guilty party's family as well. As a whole, society's ethical norms were to avoid risk, and as a result, many good ideas which were technically possible stayed as abstract thoughts and not as steps on the road to progress. For McCluskey, this, more than any other explanation, explains the when and how of the birth of the Great Divergence, since all other factors that have been attributed occurred elsewhere in various combinations. So the authors here say risk, therefore, can be expressed as an attitude about the commons more than anything else. If the rules of society protect those who are willing to take risks, this increases risk not only to the risk takers, but also has various effects on others around them, regardless of their risk tolerance. There is no escape. The status of risk legally and socially impacts everyone. The risk taker arrived in English via the French word entrepreneur, describing the willingness to undertake risk. Jeremy Bentham, in a letter to Adam Smith, colorfully compares risk-taking in business to Marcus Curtius, a Roman martyr described in Livy's history. Bentham was arguing against Smith's defense of an interest rate cap, suggesting it would stifle innovation and advantage incumbents. Now here the authors say we find ourselves on the other end of a collective conversation on risk-taking today. The tolerance of any level of risk is often cast as a threat. Reference uh, wearing masks in public, for instance. They say we have justified unprecedented economic losses based on very uncertain risks. Merely mentioning a potential downside seems to carry more weight nowadays than it did in the past. And part of this may be due to years of public health rhetoric about externalities like secondhand smoke, the collective costs associated with obesity, and the health costs of pollution. They say in 2020, the implicit calculation of risk relating to the pandemic would have to be very large to justify the trillions of dollars in economic losses that have been incurred so far, with a cumulative economic total cost that is even higher. They say we must also account for the human costs of worldwide economic contraction measured in terms of starvation deaths alone. So during the current pandemic... Two astronauts boarded a previously unmanned rocket and rode it up into near rode it into near Earth orbit to meet up with the International Space Station. As a percentage of people injured while attempting this feat, astronauts bear a much larger risk than ocean bathers. Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken took this risk, which is understood as heroic, by a society that's anxious for the technological progress that comes from making space accessible to human exploration. In an everyday sort of example, on June 2nd, a 17-year-old named Paige Winter was attacked by a shark standing in waist-deep water on the coast of North Carolina. Now, a shark attack is precisely the sort of thing we remind people of when they visit beaches. But most of us, most of us consider rather, rather the activity of standing in five-foot-deep water a reasonable risk. This activity is socially understood currently as a risk worth taking. And so beaches remain open for this sort of activity. Now, related specifically to the current pandemic, what message are venture capitalists getting about local businesses, smaller retail shops, restaurants and venues? The shift from evaluating risk as an individual to collective risk evaluation may ultimately empower local public health officials to return to 2020 measures anytime seasonal flu peaks. And they say in all of these examples, we understand the role that perceptions play in evaluating risk. 
The recent willingness to elevate risk as a primary category cannot be understood without a growing concern over liability. The asymmetric loss is not only with respect to individual decisions, but it is a mental habit that administrators also take. From your school's principal to your city's mayor to your governor or president, the focus they have is on potential loss, not only in terms of legal liability, but also in terms of social response. Every governor knows they will get very little credit for a situation that's unremarkably safe, but they will get all the credit for rising numbers of deaths and hospitalizations. So the calculation almost has to be toward safety. And what we see in this, in a, or what we see in addition to this, is that some safety measures people are taking do not actually move the needle on risk, but probably increase the risks we expose ourselves as well as others to. Wearing gloves to the grocery store is one discredited example of misguided safety measures. The logic of glove wearing requires changing gloves each time you touch a contaminant. And if you cannot do this, then you're far better off just washing your hands and using hand sanitizer between washes. See, no one knows, of course, when they've touched a contaminated surface. And so gloves give a false sense of security and may increase cross-contamination. And this example is in many others, compliance alone doesn't ensure best practices. The use of ritualistic safety measures is as effective as a batsman making the sign of the cross on their bat as they step up to the plate. It does confer an important advantage, however, to the decision maker. The longer the list of safety measures a decision maker can point to when inevitably something undesirable happens, the better exonerated they are from popular sentiment. So in the court of public opinion, the failure to enact more extreme safety protocols is seen as contributory negligence. The concept of due care, which does not hold an individual liable as long as they can show they've taken due care, has almost entirely disappeared. And as a result, our leaders are focusing on compliance with popular standards rather than experimenting to find the right standard of safety. In this environment, it's excruciatingly difficult to argue for what's lost on the other side of the equation of risk. The implied trade-offs are of no consequence when compared to safety. We lose scientific advancement if the benefits of experimentation, even when it's risky, could not sometimes outweigh the costs, including the low but positive risk of losing astronaut lives. If all but the lowest risks are considered too large to take, then progress is essentially halted. That's a fascinating article. Diane Thomas and Michael Thomas, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, I'll post it in the show notes, which you can access at lovingliberty.net. Yeah, safety's a good thing, but too much safety, not so good. This is The Brian Hyde Show.